And since you know I'm such an historical person and I love history, um, I've always loved this story. Let me just uh, remind you of uh, what happened. Shackleton set out on December 5th, 1914 um, to travel to the South Pole. You know, who would want to do that? It had never been done. After six weeks at sea on January 19th, 1915, the endurance became trapped in ice. This is pretty discouraging. On February 24th, the ship was converted into an ice station as a place to live for the winter. And it gets worse. Eight months later, on October 24th, the ship began to take on water and had to be abandoned. Then, on November 21st, almost one year after they had set out for this expedition, the endurance sank. Shackleton with 27 crew. They managed to build a camp on an ice floe, and that's just a flat piece of ice. We don't know how big it was. They can be pretty big. On April 9, 1916, the ice broke in two, which was not good. Then Shackleton ordered his 27-member crew into three lifeboats and, uh, that they had already salvaged from the endurance. After five days of rough sea, these are icy waters, um, they arrived, all three lifeboats, at Elephant Island, 346 miles from where the endurance sank. But... Elephant Island was uninhabited and uh, hardly any hope for uh, rescue. So Shackleton put his best man in charge and left 22 men with his best man in charge on Elephant Island. Shackleton then took five of his men and traveled 17 days, 800 miles by lifeboat to South Georgia Island. Then he split his men into two groups. He and two of his men trekked 32 miles in 36 hours without stopping. Then immediately Shackleton ordered a ship to rescue his three men on the other side of South Georgia Island. In the next... Um, so he then made a plan to rescue the other 22 men stuck on Elephant Island. In the next four months, those guys are still there, he set out three times by ship. Each time the ship was stalled by sea ice. Finally, on August 30th, 1916, he got through and found all 22 men alive. He had returned to keep his promise. When Shackleton saw his crew, they were ready to board his ship. And he says, guys, how could you be ready for me to come back for you? And the answer was, every morning, their leader of the 22, rolled up his sleeping bag and said, men, 
Today might be the day that our boss comes back. And so every day, that's how they lived. And that's what our message is about today. Get your things ready, boys and girls, because today might be the day that our boss, that our master, that our Lord Jesus comes, and he comes for us. Jesus told his followers on the night before he would be crucified that he promised that he would come back for them. And the passage is John 14, verses 1 through 3. It's a pretty well-known passage. And Jesus said to his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. He's, he's talking about heaven. He's talking about the eternal kingdom. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me that you may be also be where I am. Jesus said, I'm going to leave, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back for you. And that was for all of his followers. So let's have a look at our passage this morning. I'm going to begin in... Uh, Luke, uh, Matthew chapter 24, and beginning at verse 45, and I'll just uh, read the first section here. And here's what Jesus says. Remember Matthew 24 in the context, and the disciples had asked, what's going to be like at the end of the age? And then Jesus goes on to this long discourse of things that are going to be happening, and that there will be like birth pains. And he tells them uh, that they should keep watch. And this is exactly what uh, verses 43 and 44 were about before we get here. Verse 44 says, So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Now, just in case we haven't gotten that message yet, here we go with our next section. Who then is faithful and wise servant, whom the Master has put in charge of the servants in his household, to give them their food at proper time. Who's wise and who's faithful? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. And he will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is the parable of the faithful and wise uh, servant. And so we have a question that Jesus starts with. Uh, who then is faithful and wise? It's really a good question. It's a good question for us. Are we a people who are faithful and wise uh, to our master? And so Jesus speaks here of uh, stewardship responsibility when he, when he continues, whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time. So this homeowner 
this really, he's an estate owner. He has a pretty large layout if he, if he has employees in his household um, and uh, such that they need care and fed. And so he puts someone in charge, someone who he's seeking to be faithful and wise. And verses 46 and 47 describe the one who is wise, the choice of the one who is wise and, and faithful. So the master is, 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 is going to leave, and he's going to leave his servant in charge. Verse 46, it will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Doing what? Being faithful and wise. That is, if he's wise, he's making good decisions. He's making reasonable decisions. He's gathering the right information to represent his master in his decision making. And like Shackleton's man over 22 others. He's, he's going to look out for the very best for those people in his responsibility, uh, his master's um, employees or servants. If he's faithful, he's, he is faithful in his service to his master, um, one who follows his master's directives, one one who cares about what the master thinks, has a desire to please his master. Verse 47, Jesus continues, Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. And, you know, a little parable like this starts to give out clues that uh, we can identify with other, other places in the Bible, but... Uh, this wise and faithful servant will please his master, and there will be reward. His master will promote him in the future. Um, he will be given greater responsibility in the future. He will, he will have greater influence in representing the master in the, uh, in the future. He will have a high position, and he will be in charge of all of the master's possessions. The point of this story is pretty simple. It's that Jesus is telling his disciples, just as he is the master, and they are to be servants, there is a responsibility to represent him, to be faithful and wise, um, so that when he returns... The faithful and the wise will receive reward. They'll get a promotion. And um, there are other passages in the New Testament. I won't take the time to go into them. We'll look at those later at a, at a different day. But about reward in the, in the rewards in the kingdom of heaven for those who are faithful and wise, for those who are obedient, for those who bear fruit for the Savior. But there's another choice that we'll look at here in verses 48 through 51. And some people will make this choice, the choice to be unfaithful and foolish, which is the, the exact opposite of being wise and faithful. Look at verse 41, 48. But suppose the servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And so here's a, here's a, 
someone who takes the information and they begin to rationalize and think about what kind of freedom they now have. But one of the things that I think is happening here, we're getting a clue from Jesus. There is a hint here that the master may be away a long time. And you think about it, his disciples often were expecting him in their lifetime. All through history, people have been looking for Jesus to return, rightfully so. And that's where we should be as well. But there is a suggestion of a delay. And the unfaithful servant wants to take advantage of this delay. Verse 49, and he, that unfaithful servant, begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. This, this servant isn't worried at all about being accountable to his master. Um, he gets sloppy. He, he's self-focused and he's indulgent. He, he's harsh and he's violent. And he, frankly, would just rather party than be concerned about his master. And then we come to verse 51. And I think verse 51 kind of just opens the door to the spiritual realm. As we've come along now, the story has just been a common kind of picture in the first century, and his listeners understood it pretty, pretty easily. And then we, we come to verse 51. He will cut him to pieces. Now, I don't know that that happened very often, where a master um, cut his uh, own servants into pieces. I, it probably happened by... in. Uh, pretty wicked situations. He will cut him. This is the good master will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. And if you want to go to the back to the first century, who were those hypocrites? And, you know, I think Jesus' disciples understood this. Those, those hypocrites, they were the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the high priests of Jesus' day, the religious leaders, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be consequences, is the point. And here, uh, it's just like Jesus opens up this whole spiritual realm. He's making this spiritual connection that's beyond just the earthly story. This is the accounting for the wicked servant is judgment at the end of the age, a judgment in hell. It's assigned to the hypocrites. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that, Jesus referred to that many times in the New Testament. It's a place of eternal torment, a place of eternal judgment. The Apostle Paul understood this really well. And in writing to the church in Thessalonica, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, um, verses 6 through 9, this is what he writes. He says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Now, here's the point. This will happen. This is what I want us to see. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire. This has already been referred to in Matthew 24 at the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ when he comes again. 
This is a picture of what happens in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 17. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Next slide. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, how do you obey the gospel? Do you have to do something? Well, the offer, the invitation of the gospel is to believe, is to trust, it's to put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we obey the gospel. It's not about a list of good works. It's about receiving the gift that God offers in the gospel, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of eternal life. Verse 9, they, back to the wicked, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord from the glory of his might. Punished. Everlasting destruction. Shut out from the presence of the Lord. That's an eternal separation from God. Jesus called it hell. So, church, this is written to the church. This is not written to unbelievers. It's written to you and to me. Why? Because this is really important. This is why we're here. This is why God has given us a mission. This is why God has called us to be a church. Because there are going to be some people in our world that will end up in everlasting destruction. And how we live makes a world of difference and the opportunity to influence people for Jesus Christ. I can tell you that I came to faith in Christ because somebody was bold enough to share with me and invest time to answer my questions and to put up with me because I was not a fun person. The reason we're here is to rescue as many people as possible from this day that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's go on to the second parable. The parable of the wedding attendants, chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. The story starts in verses 1 through 12, and we're going to read down through that. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. So, at what time? At that time, at what time? Well, it's the time that Jesus has been talking about. He clearly identified it in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. It's that last week. It's the Daniel's 70th week. It's that time at the end of the age. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. And so right away, we know there's going to be a comparison here. The kingdom of heaven is going to be compared to something else. He introduces the metaphor. And then he starts with this story, and this is kind of foreign to us, you know. Here we go. Ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. Now, wedding customs were a bit different in the first century than they are in 21st century 
America. And because the customs were different, it makes it a little more difficult for us. Um, Rather than saying there are 10 virgins, it'd be better to say for us there are 10 wedding attendants. If we say 10 virgins, we get focused on virginity. That's not what this is about. This is about people in the first century culture that were assigned to be attendants at this wedding for the bridegroom. And the job was to meet the bridegroom and the wedding party upon arrival home for this huge reception. A great banquet would be held. And their job was to be ready. Five were wise, five were foolish. Well, how so? Verse 3. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. Now, I don't know exactly what these lamps looked looked like. I think they were kind of like tiki torches. You know, we have tiki torches where we can use in our backyard, and they help with mosquitoes. They're just cans on a pole with tiki oil, and they work great. These were probably a little more primitive, but they were like that. There were rags soaked in oil, and they were used to light, and when the and when, when they started to go out, they just had to add more oil. Verse 5. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. Oh, do you hear it again? It's a clue. There could be a long time before the bridegroom comes. It just suggests a delay in Christ's return. Bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep because the bridegroom was a long time in coming. Now, the wedding attendants are not criticized for falling asleep. Does that make you feel better? (laughs) They're not criticized. This is not the problem because they all fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. So there was this loud shout, and everyone woke up. But they weren't really woke. The wedding attendants did their best to be ready. Um, Verse 7, the foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of us. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some of you, uh, for yourselves. So five of the wedding attendants recognized their need to be ready, and they were totally ready. Um, they brought extra oil for their lamps, and um, five of the wedding attendants weren't ready. They didn't bring oil for their lamps, and their lamps were fading fast. Verse 10. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went with him to the wedding banquet, and and the door was shut. The opportunity came to meet the bridegroom and now accompany him to the wedding banquet. Five were ready, and they 
went in, and five were not, and the door was shut. Later, the other wedding attendants came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. The five who were not ready came late. They tried to enter the banquet. The door of opportunity was closed, and they were refused entry. And so it will be at the end of the age. Now, the key players here, the bridegroom, and this is um, a portrait of the returning of Jesus Christ at the end of the age to establish his kingdom in my understanding. There were five foolish wedding attendants, those who are not ready for Jesus' return. There are five wise wedding attendants, and these are genuine believers who are prepared and ready for the return of Jesus. Now, let me just help fill in the picture here with the background uh, to the wedding First century weddings in Israel started with a first phase or first stage, and that's where the parents of the bride and the groom got together and they made a legal agreement. And so for us, it would be like a legal engagement. Mary and Joseph had that kind of legal engagement when, when Mary became pregnant. Um, you know, they didn't have dating apps, and they didn't go to college to find a mate. They just, their parents did the whole thing. Now, after many months, often a, a year, the bridegroom and his friends went to the bride's home, and there was a huge celebration, and that's where the official wedding took place, at the bride's home. And then, after the uh, official ceremony. There was a celebration at the um, bride's home. Then the groom returned to his home with his bride and his friends. And when they arrived at his home, there would be another huge celebration, which could last for days. And there would be a great wedding banquet at the bridegroom's home. So some of these wedding attendants had to remain at the bridegroom's home to be ready when that bridegroom and his friends with his new bride returned. Just like those, those wedding attendants in our story, those, those ten virgins. Now, let me give you a short synopsis of the interpretation. Jesus is the bridegroom behind the story. One day there will be a great wedding feast in heaven. See Revelation chapter 19, the wedding feast, the supper of the Lamb. Jesus' bride will already be with him. His bride, the church, the bride of Christ, already with him. The wedding attendants are those waiting for him at the end of the age. Some will be ready to enter the kingdom, and some will not. 
and they shall perish in everlasting hell. That's the message that Jesus is sharing. And the application comes in verse 13. And Jesus says, therefore, keep watch. You do not know the day or the hour. Now, this is a lesson for all ages. I don't mean your chronological age. I mean for the ages from the time of Jesus until he returns. It's a lesson for all of us. Jesus has not returned yet. He has been a long time in coming. And whatever you believe about end-time prophecy, because I, you know, I recognize there, there are several significant views about the end of the age, whatever you believe about the end-time prophecy, it is really clear that we are to keep watch right now. Uh, we are to be wise and faithful stewards until he comes until our master returns. We are to keep watch. We are to be spiritually ready. We are to be responsible for our own spiritual lives. We are to be responsible for our families if we're raising kids. We are responsible for how we spend our time, our, how, we, how, we, how we approach our work. We are responsible. We are, we are stewards. We are responsible for our money, and our stuff. We are responsible for Jesus' church. I think that's a really hard concept for the 21st century church. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you, and then the world will know that you are my disciples. That is a high commitment. It's the very same words that God used to describe my marriage that I am to love my wife as Jesus loved the church. We are responsible for Jesus' church. We are responsible for Jesus' mission. He has given us a responsibility as a church. It is not the side job. It is why we are all here. We have different roles. We have different jobs, different situations, but we only have one mission. Personal happiness and comfort, uh, comfort are not Jesus' biggest priorities. But that often describes the American church. We are to be ready. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is a passage that we've looked at many times, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And Paul uh, reminds us that there is an event coming for all of us. I don't know when it will be, but there is a time coming when I will stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, and I'll have to give an accounting as a believer, as a Christ follower. And you will too. You'll stand before the same Jesus, the judgment seat of Christ. And I don't know what it's going to be like. I've described it as I just sort of imagine I'm going to have something like a video screen where my whole life is going to flash before me and it's going to be instantaneous 
and I'm going to know. I'm going to know what Jesus really thought. I'm going to know, I'll be reminded of, gee, you weren't perfect, Jerry. You did, you were, you were, these were stupid things. And then there were some good things. And I'm going to know, and you're going to know. Being ready requires realigning, realigning our priorities. And we talked about this last week. Realigning our priorities under the Lordship of Christ. Surrendering to Him and following His leadership. Following His directions. Now, there's a, many people in here today have a personal relationship with Jesus and you're glad to call yourselves follower of Christ. There may be people here today who aren't sure yet. They're not sure that they have a relationship with God. If they're not sure if they have a relationship with Jesus. So the question is, what if I don't have a personal relationship with Jesus? My question for you is, would you like to have a personal relationship with Jesus if you don't? So if you, you are here and that describes you, let me just remind you of some basic truths in, in the scripture about having a relationship with Jesus. The very first thing is to admit to God that you are a sinner. Admit to God that you are a sinner. Now, can you do this? Uh, the Bible calls sin um, failing God's standards, falling short. Um, doing things that dishonor God in our, in our words, our actions, or attitudes. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, we're in the same boat. We, we all are sinners. Only Jesus was the perfect one. And God is holy. And because of our sin, we, we get separated from God. We cannot have a relationship with God on our own. God um, supplied a way to have a relationship with him, and I'm going to describe that in just a minute. So admit to God that you are a sinner, and if you could admit that, that's where you start. And then also understand the consequences of sin. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. The good news is, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. One leads to death, one leads to life. Wages are what we earn. It's what we get for what we've done. Um, the wages of sin, Paul describes here, is death. And he's not talking about just physical death, and we're all facing physical death. And he's talking about a spiritual death. Physical death is when the body separates from the eternal aspect, the eternal part, the soul. There's a separation. The body goes to the grave. The soul lives on. Eternal separation from God is when the soul is separated from God for an eternity. Jesus described it as hell. Thirdly, know that Jesus died for you and took your consequences on himself. This is good news. This is the message of the gospel. 
Jesus died for you and took your consequences on himself. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love uh, for us in this while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. This is something God has already done for you. He, he's taken the initiative. There's a problem that, that we have. Sin separates us from God, and he's the one who has initiated the solution. And that is, Jesus died on the cross, and he took all of our sin, and because of who he is, the, God's son, the son of God, his life is infinitely valuable. How, how large is infinite? It's pretty big. Infinitely valuable. How big is the sin penalty of the entire world? It's big, but it's finite. Jesus took all of our sin and put it on himself. And God the Father is satisfied with that payment. He accepts it totally and in full, and it is paid for. And it was paid for by Jesus in the first century. It is done. It is the good work of our salvation, and there is nothing more that you could ever add to it. I deserve the death. Jesus took my place. He experienced death for me. So there's one requirement when we know these things, and that's to trust Jesus to save you from the penalty of your sin. This is God's requirement for you and for me. In Acts 16.31, uh, the Apostle Paul and Silas were asked the question by the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? And they replied in Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. If you believe, you will be saved. If people in your household believe, they will be saved. It's about accepting this message by faith. Jesus died for you. He paid the penalty for your sins. Can you embrace that? Can you accept what God has done for you, what God has said about you? Can you trust him? Can you accept this message by faith? The amazing thing is, this is true whether you believe it or not. Believing doesn't make it true. It is true. The Apostle John put it this way in John 3.16. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes will not perish. And the Apostle John is talking about perishing in hell. He's talking about eternal death. He's talking about eternal condemnation. He's talking about whoever believes shall not die spiritually. And then he says, but they will have eternal life. They will have an eternal relationship with God. Their sins will be forgiven. They will have an eternal relationship with God in heaven. So my question comes back and just sim very simply, would you like to begin a relationship with Jesus today if you've never done that before? Would you like to start 
a relationship. And it's about trusting Jesus to save you from the penalty of your sin. Prayer is one way that we can express our faith. And it's one way we, we can talk to God and tell him what we're thinking. We can express our trust in Jesus Christ. So um, here's a prayer I'm just going to suggest. I'm going to go through it two times. And the first time, I just want you to listen. I want you to think about it. Does it make sense to you? Then the second time, I'll just ask us to bow our heads. But here's the first time. Just look up at me. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I, I know I failed you. I understand that Jesus died for me and he took my place and I trust him right now to pay the penalty for my sins. And I ask him to come into my life and I ask him to help me to be the person that he wants me to be, that he would be my Lord. Can you make that prayer your own? Let's just bow together. Everyone bow their heads and their hearts and just pray. Silently from your heart, if that prayer made sense to you, would you pray with me and would you place your faith in Christ? Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. Thank you so much that you sent Jesus to die for me. Right now, I embrace that by faith. I, I trust Jesus died for me. I don't deserve it. And God, I confess, I need your help. Would you help me to be the kind of person that you want me to be? And if everybody would just keep their heads still bowed, and if, if you prayed that prayer with me, would you mind just uh, slipping up your hand so I can see it? If you prayed along with me, just slip up your hand. Thank you. You can put your hand down. Father, I uh, thank you for the good news that we have. Thank you that Jesus died for us. And I thank you for those uh, who prayed with me this morning and, and placed their faith in Jesus. May they have a sense of forgiveness and peace in their hearts right now. May they have a desire to go from here and to trust you and to seek to follow your leadership. God, for all of us, as we, as we wait, as we wait for your return, may we be faithful and wise. May we be ready. May, be, may we be watching. May we continually evaluate, do our priorities need to be re realigned? Do we need to sharpen our spiritual focus? Guide our steps for Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.